There are some messages that we do here at Scottsdale Bible Church that would clearly be at the 101 level. They're just, that's where the scripture takes us. It's not rocket science. It's, it's harder always to live the truth, but not always hard to understand it. And then there's some messages that we do that are at the 201, 301, maybe even the 401 level. If you were with us during the series on Daniel uh, a little while back, you know that there's a couple of messages we went through with that that were definitely at the 401 level. And it's interesting, when you hit the 401 level of, of uh, preaching and teaching, it, it's 401 usually because of one of two reasons. Either one, because it's very difficult concepts to understand, whether it be end-time scenarios or predestination and free will or something of that nature, or it's a 401 level because, though it's not hard to understand, it's really hard to live. It, it just like cuts against the grain of everything that our culture and our world tends to scream at us. And the reason that I'm telling you all this is because today is clearly, and I knew this coming in, going to be one of those 401 level messages, not in its complexity to understand. In fact, I don't think you're going to have any problem understanding the truth that Philippians 1 is going to share with us today. It's going to be 401 in the sense of that these are tough things to live that we're going to talk about today. But here's the promise, is that if we can somehow live the things that I'm going to share with you today from the Word, then the promise on the other side is joy, peace, purpose, and a a true vision of God. And I have to believe at the end of the day, that's what all of our hearts are after. We're much more concerned about knowing God and finding our satisfaction, our contentment, our life in Him than we are anything else. And so if that's at all your goal, then hang in with me there today. That's where we're going to end up by the end of our time. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word uh, is always clear. It always guides us into a right understanding of you. But Lord, at times it's difficult to live out. It shares with us things that that we might necessarily not want to hear. So I pray, God, as today kind of puts us into the deep end of that understanding of you, things that are easy to understand but very, very difficult for us to live. I pray, God, that you might focus our minds, soften our hearts, that we might be able to receive the things that you have for us today. God, you know that I feel that the things we're going to look at today are truly what separate the men from the boys, the women from the gals when it comes to those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And so I pray, God, that as we do that today, that uh, you might encourage our hearts, even challenge us in our walks with you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So let's begin with this understanding, and that is that though most people don't realize that all of us have what is known as a worldview. All of us, every one of us here today, everybody in the world has a worldview. In other words, we each have a certain view of the world around us, a certain paradigm, a certain set of presumptions, a certain internal grid, if you will, that we use to funnel everything that we see, hear, and experience through in order to understand the world around us. And the power of a worldview is formidable because it not only colors how you see the world, but it determines how you're going to respond to things that come at you in life. A worldview is going to absolutely determine how you respond to your spouse, how you respond at work, how you respond to the newspaper, how you respond to your kids, how you respond to your own feelings when they don't work. A worldview is the grid we use that determines the responses that we have to the world around us. So look up here on the screen. Hitler had a worldview, believing that the Aryan race was the only true race for humankind, and it led him to attempt world domination and even the extinction of the Jewish 
Jewish people. Oscar Wilde, the great 19th century Victorian era poet, had a worldview, believing that pleasure was worth seeking at all costs, and this led him to a life of hedonism and eventually self-destruction. More positively, Mahatma Gandhi had a worldview, believing that peace and nonviolent protest is always better than war, and in the 20th century led one of the most powerful changes that the nation India had ever seen. Mother Teresa, as we all know, had a worldview, believing that compassion and tenderness and pouring your life into the poor and needy was a good way to be used of God. And she led a selfless crusade all of her life to help those in need. I mean, even Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, has a worldview, believing that music and sex and a decadent lifestyle is worth investing the majority of your time and energy into. And I could go on and on this morning, folks, from Billy Crystal to Billy Graham, from Hillary Clinton to Hillary Duff, from Muhammad Ali to Moses, from Jimmy Carter to Jamie Rasmussen, you get the point. Everybody, now that's not my point, everybody... (laughs) has a worldview. Every one of us carry around with us a paradigm, thoughts and presumptions about the world that not only color how we see things, but even determine the actions that we're going to take in this life. And the reason that this is so important, folks, is because for Christians, now get this, we are called to transform our worldview to now how God thinks and feels about this world that he has made, this world that even he is in the process of redeeming. It's true. We are called to develop our worldview in line with what God says about this world and even us. And it's unmistakable that this is what God's will is for us. Look at how he says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Look up here on the screen. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that that testing may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so don't miss this. Unlike many people in this world who simply allow their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own past experiences to dictate what their worldview should be, you and I are called not to that kind of conformity. We are not called to simply say, hey, what do I think about this world and what do I think my thoughts and feelings and responses should be? No, we are called to not conform to the world, but to transform our thinking into what God says about us, those around us, this world, and even himself. And so we're called to a Christian worldview. And in case you've ever wondered, this is why believers engage in Bible study why we listen to lots of sermons, why we sing worship songs, why we rub shoulders with other like-minded believers. This is why we serve others, why we share our faith. It's all toward the goal of transforming our minds and our hearts and even our actions to Jesus Christ, not conforming to this world. And this transformation, this worldview, is to touch every aspect of our lives, every aspect of how we think, feel, and act in all areas of our lives. From our marriages, to our jobs, to the way that we raise our kids, to how we view money, to our friends, and obviously even to how we view and act with Almighty God. And so this is what the book of Philippians is all about. It's what the book of Philippians that we're studying here at Scottsdale Bible Church this spring is trying to help us do. Taking us through topic after topic, it's helping us transform our thinking in a very encouraging way, just encouraging us to begin thinking, feeling, acting, and behaving as ones who follow Christ should. 
And with this understanding, this morning we get to probably, as I said earlier, one of the most difficult and yet crucial areas of transforming our mind to have the worldview of Christ. And it has to do with how we view and respond to all the struggles and problems we have as followers of Jesus Christ in this world. In other words, folks, where Paul the Apostle is going to lead us today as we go through chapter 1 in this short but power-packed letter of his is how to develop a Christian attitude toward the struggles of life. How to respond in a Christ-like way when life deals us the wrong deck. When things go against the grain of how we thought they should go. And Paul is not going to be as concerned with the dumb choices that we have made that was ca- have caused our problems, though some of that might fit in. No, he's most concerned with the things that you and I experience just through living in a fallen world as ones who are trying to follow Jesus Christ. Things that will happen to us, as we'll see in a minute here, because of, of just the evil one, or things that will happen to us because we live in fallen bodies, or things that will happen to us because we're following Jesus Christ right now. Remember the setting of the book of Philippians? He's writing to a people who are stuck in a downhill culture and have an uphill struggle. Don't ever forget that. That's the setting of the book of Philippians. They were in a downhill culture that was dealing them a raw deck or a difficult deck and they were struggling uphill much of their lives. And so that's what Paul is writing to here and he's going to share with us some powerful and life-changing things that we can incorporate into our thinking when it comes to our problems. In short, he's going to share with us how we can hold true. That's the title of our message this morning, how we can persevere in the midst of whatever life might throw our way. So without any further introduction, four things that he shares with us here in chapter 1. Four things that can transform the way that you and I think about the problems that we have in following Christ. And my promise is this, if you can make it through these four things, if you can begin to live these things and more importantly have them deeply rooted in your thinking, then you will go from bitterness to joy, you will go from confusion to peace. It's a promise that the scriptures give us here. So here's the first one. Let's start off real simple but profound. And that is that life will be difficult. You all know that. But here's what you might not know, especially for believers. That's the first thing we need to own in a worldview of suffering. And that is that life will be difficult, especially for believers. Now you're saying, what's that about? Look at verses 29 to 30 of Philippians chapter 1. This is very revealing. Paul says, for it has been granted to you, meaning those of us who are followers of Christ, for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Focus on those phrases I put there in yellow. For it has been granted to you to suffer engaged in conflict. And don't miss what he's saying here, folks. For though we all know that simply living in a fallen world is going to produce difficulty, notice with me that Paul's saying something totally different here. Namely, he's saying that because you happen to know and follow Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer even more so because of his name's sake now, and that you're going to experience conflict just like all the other believers around the world do as well. I mean, don't miss how Paul states this. He says that being a Christian is not just about believing in Christ with the obvious implications being forgiveness and filling of the Spirit and hope and purpose and the guarantee of eternal life, all the wonderful things that come from believing, but it also entails suffering and conflict. 
Don't miss that. Part and parcel of being a follower of Christ put right alongside the fact that you believe in him is the fact that if you believe in him, you're also going to suffer with him. I like how one commentator puts it. He says it's like fire and heat. You can't have one without the other. Paul is saying you want the light of God's fire to guide your way, you're also going to get the heat. And so maybe look at it this way. When you consider the three most common sources of trouble and problems for most people, which are what the Bible calls the flesh, the world, and the evil one, the flesh being our own choices and mistakes, that causes us problems, the world, meaning others around us that cause problems in our lives, and then the evil one, spiritual darkness that obviously wages war in this world. When you consider those three things, and here's where it gets tricky, both believers and non-believers experience those three sources of trouble, right? I mean, both believers and non-believers deal with their own flesh, they deal with the problems in this world, and they deal with the evil one. But isn't it interesting that what the scriptures then affirm is that when you become a believer, two out of the three of those sources of problems will increase for you. Maybe picture it this way, the target that you had on your back when it, when it came to you not being, when you were formerly not a Christian, has now grown exponentially in two of these three areas when you decided to follow Christ. You know what those areas are? The world and the evil one. I mean, the target of your back has not grown as it comes to the flesh because now actually you have more victory over the flesh since you're a follower of Christ. You have the spirit that lives in you that helps you learn how to battle sin and even have victory over sin. But when it comes to the world and the evil one, what the Bible affirms is that the small target that you used to have on your back before you were following Christ has now gotten bigger because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians here. So when it comes to the world, people are going to be threatened by your faith at times and ridicule you. They're going to feel conviction at times due to your increase in righteousness, and they're going to lash out at you. They're going to want to justify their own sin around you and argue against you. And all the while, the evil one's not sitting on his hands and sitting back and smiling. No, the Bible says that he's like a roaring lion prowling around looking for some believer to attack. And so how does this work in real life? Well, you might experience a job loss, or you might go through some anxiety or depression or even an illness that doesn't seem to have an underlying cause. You might struggle in some of your key relationships, say with your spouse, your family, your friends, and be unable to explain why. And when these things happen to you, you would be foolish as a follower of Jesus Christ to not realize that there is some spiritual battle going on in the midst of that. Amen? You'd be foolish to think that the battle we have, as Ephesians 6 says, is only against flesh and blood. These are just natural, normal things that happen to people. No, when you became a believer, the Bible says you now got a spiritual battle going on in which the target has grown on you when it comes to the world and when it comes to the evil one. And so before you knew Christ, the world accepted you because you were like them. And before you knew Christ, the evil one didn't care about you. You were not a threat to him at all. But now that you know Christ, please see, the world cares and the evil one cares. And that's simply the point of this first point here, and that is to set your expectations in line with what God's Word says about you. The fact that as a believer in Christ now, the heat's turned up and you're going to struggle more. 
Again, I know when I gave this first point, some of you were sitting there saying, well, duh, Jamie, like everybody knows this one. Let's move on to the next point. But the reality is that I'm shocked at how many Christians today, even though the Bible says to them that you're going to struggle more as a follower of Christ, get awfully surprised when difficult things happen to them. You ever notice that? I mean, Christians are like the first ones to get in line saying, why do bad things happen to God's people? And I simply want to say, have you read the Bible? Like, did you look at the life of the Apostle Paul? Did you look at Peter, John, James, Jesus, David, Solomon, Saul, Job? I mean, look at any great Bible character, and what do you find? When they took God seriously, the struggles heated up because this world is not our home, and now we're engaged in a battle. I had a good friend of mine the other day say to me, I think the definition of sanctification is a God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. I thought, he's right. That's what sanctification is. Isn't it, Trent? A God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. And yet if there's no battle, what is there to fight? And so the reality is the first thing we must affirm in our worldview of suffering is that life is going to be hard, and even more so for you and me. Now, I'm going to really disappoint you here because if you thought that was hard to swallow, it gets harder as we go along this morning. I told you this is 401 level. And what Philippians goes on to say next, I'm telling you folks, is not for the spiritually faint-hearted. And though harder to hear than even this first point, again, I want to put a promise before you. And that is that if you can accept this next thing that I'm about to share with you, that as you're going to see, comes right from Philippians chapter 1, I promise you, if you make this a part of your worldview, you will have a noticeable lack of bitterness and resentment that will become replaced with joy and hope. Do you want that? A noticeable lack of bitterness and resentment that will become replaced with joy and hope. And so here is the second biblical attitude toward the struggles of life, and it's this. In the midst of life's struggles, we must consider more the overall purposes of God rather than our own relief and comfort. You heard me right. We must consider more the overall purposes of God rather than our own relief and comfort. This is a thoroughly biblical worldview when it comes to how we approach our struggles. And yes, you are noticing that I am pitting against one another the tenacious desire, especially living in 21st century Scottsdale, that you and I have for relief and comfort at all costs with the overall purposes, and as we're going to see a little bit later, the glory of God. And I'm asking you, which one are you going to choose? And though the temptation will be to say, I want both, and to try to weasel out of this, and that's okay. We'll talk about the fact that maybe you're going to get both. There comes a point in life, and tell me if this isn't true, where we're at a crossroad, where we have to ask ourselves, in the absence of relief and comfort, am I willing to accept, am I willing to receive, and even understand the overall purposes of God in my life? What are we talking about here? I want you to look at verses 12 to 14 of Philippians chapter 1, and you tell me if you don't see what I see here that proves this point. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's a really important phrase, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. 
and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So catch the mindset of this guy named Paul here. As you might remember, he's in prison right now in Rome. He had once been a very well-respected, sophisticated Jewish leader, and now he's lost his job. He's been ridiculed by most of his contemporaries. He's been abandoned by some of his best friends, physically beaten by his captors. These are the circumstances, these are the what has happened to me that he's talking about here in this passage. Some really difficult stuff. And yet, isn't it interesting that instead of demanding relief and comfort from God whom he is serving, he says that all of this has turned out to advance the gospel. Do you see that there in verse 12? That's very interesting. Uh, Paul could have responded like the average evangelical in America today and said, God, why are these things happening to me? Why don't you take these things away? Why are these things, good, good things don't happen to God's people. He could have responded just like that. But instead of that, he chooses in his worldview to see the advance of the gospel happening in and through his suffering. And don't miss that by this he means two things. In verse 13, he means that non-believers have now heard about Christ because of his difficult circumstances. He says the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else know about Christ because of Paul's difficulties. The whole Praetorian Guard was simply the Imperial Roman Army back then. It numbered about 9,000 people. A lot of them were in Philippi because it was a military town. So he's basically saying, hey, these rough and tumble soldiers are learning about Jesus because of me being in prison. Because they asked me why I'm here. And I tell them I'm not here because I murdered somebody or stole a chariot or something like that. I'm here because I'm talking about Jesus Christ. That's the only reason I'm in prison. And then they say, Jesus who? And as a result of that, Paul gets to share the gospel with them. And he's saying, that fires me up. That jazzes me, even in the midst of my suffering. And then notice a second reason that the gospel is advancing because of Paul's suffering. And that's in verse 14 when he says that believers now are trusting Christ more deeply and have more courage in their lives and less fear. Isn't that interesting? Then in verse 14, he says they have far more courage, which literally means extraordinary boldness, And he says they have less fear. Paul is saying because of my circumstances, these believers are rising up and taking courage. And and they have have a less fear than they ever had of the Roman army and the Jewish persecutors. It's like waning big time in their lives. All because Paul had these difficult circumstances. Do you see, folks? He's not crying bloody murder to God and asking him why he's in jail. He's not saying this isn't fair, God. Why do bad things happen to those who serve you? And he's not demanding that God even bring relief and comfort his way, though he's going to ask for that in a minute. But he's not demanding it. No, he's much more concerned about the overall purposes of God in and through his life, purposes like seeing unbelievers come to Jesus and believers being ministered to. And so kind of like a radar that's fixed on the airplane of God's activity and purposes, Paul's radar is fixed on what God is doing in and through his circumstances, even if it meant that his feelings weren't going to be comfortable and his circumstances would not be light. And so here's the obvious point to you and I, and it's what I'm trying to get at here, folks. And that is that if most of us would stop seeking and even demanding comfort and relief from God at all costs when tough times hit, I believe that we would have much more peace, 
much less bitterness, much more of a focus on what God is really up to in our lives and in this world, and we persevere much easier through the difficult times that we have. I guess maybe look at it this way, kind of like somebody who's digging their heels in. When many of us go through difficult times, you've got a choice. You can either dig your heels in and demand that God bring you relief and comfort, and if he doesn't, then he is not good which is how many believers tend to respond, at least in their spirits. Or you can loosen your grip, loosen the digging in of your heels, and say, yes, God, I do want relief and comfort. We'll get to that in a minute. But more so, I want to see what your purposes are, what you're up to, even in the midst of my pain. And all I can tell you, folks, is that over the years, for faithful men and women of God who have adopted this kind of worldview in the midst of their suffering, they have found incredible purpose and peace and even seen the movement of God in their lives. Our first service uh, here at Scottsdale Bible is usually the most mature in the sense of older longevity, been around the church block at least, well, 40, 50 years. So when I asked them how many of them had ever heard of a great preacher in Britain back in the 1850s by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, most of them raised their hands. I told them that those hands were going to get less as we went throughout the day. But I was referring to the 1115 service. So how many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Okay, about half of you, maybe two-thirds. Good. Charles Spurgeon was probably one of the greatest preachers in the last 2,000 years of Christianity. As I mentioned, he lived back in about 1850, back in in Britain, and he pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, or London, I can't remember the name of the church, it was Metropolitan something, and it was about 8,000 people back then. This was way before the days of mega churches. He was a voracious writer, I mean, he just wrote like crazy, and we have most of his writings today, and, and quite frankly, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, a very, very good man of God. And yet what most people don't know about Spurgeon's life is that he was gripped by massive depression for most of his life. And we're not talking a light battle with depression, but a very dark battle with depression that his biographers tell us immobilized him for days at a time and even drove him to consider resigning from the pulpit in times of his life. In fact, his depression was so strong that there were times that the only thing that could bring sleep to him at night was to have his wife read for him Pilgrim's Progress that just by reading an old-time novel would rest his soul and put him to sleep. In fact, listen to how one of his biographers puts it. He says, we can sum it all up by saying that from boyhood days, dreadful moods of depression repeatedly tormented Spurgeon. Every mental and spiritual labor labor at such times had to be carried on under protest of spirit. He would often sigh, and I quote, the chariot wheels drag heavily, even prayer seems like a labor. This was the battle, the thorn in the flesh, if you will, that Spurgeon had much of his life, and it was very serious. One point toward the end of his life in 1880, he was preaching a sermon on Psalm 23. Most of you have heard of Psalm 23, uh, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, all that. And he got to the verse that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Now I want you to listen to what Spurgeon said at this point in his message. He says, You should not give way, or he says, I know that wise brethren say you should not give way to feelings of depression. Quite right, no more we should. But we do. And perchance when your brain is as weary as ours, you will not bear yourselves more bravely than we do. 
But desponding people are very much to be blamed, some will say. I know they are. But they are also very much to be pitied. And perhaps if those who blame quite so furiously could once know what depression is, they would think it cruel to scatter blame where comfort is needed. Now look up here on the screen. Look what he says next. He says there are experiences of the children of God which are full of spiritual darkness. And I am almost persuaded that those of God's servants who have been most highly favored have nevertheless suffered more times of darkness than others. I have one question for you. Do you think that Spurgeon would have been as good of a preacher he is, as godly of a man he is, as compassionate of a pastor as he was, as faithful of a husband and father that he was, if he had not gone through that humbling depression that he went through? I I don't think he would. I've learned way too many times in this life that God uses brokenness and very difficult times in our lives to produce in us a dependency, a humility of spirit, a richness of spirit that is so usable in the hands of God, we look back and say only God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, that every great man or woman of God in the history of known Christianity has had some sort of thorn in the flesh, some sort of very serious, lifelong struggle that kept them very usable in the hands of God. And yet they had to respond to that struggle with a worldview that didn't cop an attitude always saying, why God? But they had to respond to it with a worldview that said, I I want to see the overall purposes of God more so than I do even my relief and comfort. That's the second thing that we need to affirm in our worldview when it comes to our struggles. That many times God has a much higher purpose in and through our lives than even our own comfort and mature Christians recognize that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. If we're having a cup of coffee and I laid these first two points out to you that life is difficult, especially for believers, and that one of the biggest problems believers have is that they are more in love with their own relief and comfort than they are the purposes of God, you might be tempted to say, okay, Jamie, I get this, but let me ask you, Does this ever mean then that I will get relief and comfort? I mean, is it okay to want solutions to my problems and relief from my pain? How does that fit into it? And that's a good question. And you just might like the answer. And the answer is the third truth that Philippians 1 shares with us this morning that makes up a Christian worldview toward the struggles of life, and it's this. That when you are struggling, remember, and this is a promise, deliverance will come, but here's the caveat, one way or the other. Remember that deliverance will come one way or the other. Now, what are we saying here? Because this might not be saying what some of us think it's saying. I want you to look with me at how Paul the Apostle ends this section here in Philippians 1, verses 19 to 20, and you tell me again if you see what I see here. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And now maybe you see what we mean by the fact that deliverance will come one way or the other. Notice what Paul is saying. 
He's saying there initially, I'm going to get deliverance. And there's even room here for us to see the fact that he's asking the Philippians to pray that he would get deliverance now, temporally, in life. In fact, there's evidence all throughout Philippians that Paul wants to be out of jail. He wants to be back with his friends. He wants to be eating good meals again. He wants to sleep in a comfortable bed again. He'll go on to say in chapter 4, I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to be in need. And there's ample evidence in Philippians that he would like to get out of jail there and to be delivered and have relief and comfort once again in his life. If for no other reason than to get on with being a missionary. But we also know that Paul had the mindset here, as we just saw, that he was more concerned, however, with the overall purposes of God. That he was more concerned that God's glory, as we'll see, would be revealed in his life. And if that meant the absence of relief and comfort, if that meant the absence of a positive answer to his prayer, then so be it. That's part of a worldview of struggles here. And so that's what he means in verse 20 when he says, yeah, I want to be delivered. But guess what? I'm going to be delivered whether in this life or in the next. And therein lies the key to his worldview. Don't miss this, folks. He's saying that my eager expectation and hope is that I be delivered now. But either by life or death, it's going to come. And on him, I have set my hope. And don't miss that once again, Paul is setting his expectations correctly, thus avoiding profound disappointment. He's realizing that God is fully capable of delivering him and changing his circumstances. And he's even hoping and praying he will. That's a good thing. But he nonetheless realizes and honors that God is not bound to do this. And that ultimate deliverance is going to come someday anyways. And so either way, by life or by death, he wins. And he has his eyes set on God's deliverance in whatever measure it's going to come. Do you see that? Kind of like a guy who's climbing a mountain peak. Picture it this way. And he sees one mountain peak and then he sees another mountain peak behind it. One mountain peak represents deliverance now. The other mountain peak represents deliverance then in heaven in glory. And Paul, while climbing this mountain, has no idea which mountain peak he's going to get to first. He's shooting for the first one. That's what he's banking on. But he doesn't know if God's going to pull an end run, have him go around the mountain to the second one. That might be God's will for him. But either way, he's got his sights set on the mountain peaks before him because they both represent God. And so, folks, what this means is that when you're struggling with problems this side of heaven that become because you live in a fallen world and you're doing your best to follow God, remember, deliverance will come. One way or the other, it's going to come. You have great hope. God might change your circumstances now, or he might not. But either way, deliverance will come. This is the mindset and worldview of a Christian who believes God and follows him through his word. And what this really means for you and I today is that we reject the silly notion then proposed by some people today that God will always change your circumstances if you're simply faithful enough or if you pray enough. Aren't you sick of hearing that? You turn on certain TV channels and you see a TV preacher, preacher, I'm not going to mention anybody by name, and they tell you that if you just have enough faith, or if you buy that prayer rug, if you send them money and put your tithe toward them, then then God's going to answer your prayer and give you the blessing that you want. And they make it sound like if you do those things, it's an absolute promise. 
And here's where the spiritual abuse comes in, because what that teaching basically says then, and they sometimes will even overtly say this, is that if you then throw, give in your faith or throw your faith into the ring and you don't get your blessing, then whose fault is it? It's yours. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough prayer. You didn't do enough for God to unleash his blessing in your life. And I'm telling you, that's spiritual abuse and it's unbiblical. It is more than possible for a believer to be fully trusting God with everything in him or her, faithfully praying every day, following him in his word, laying their lives surrendered before him and not get the relief and blessings that we want. And it doesn't mean that God loves you any less. It does not mean that his grace is not poured out on you. In fact, if we're reading Philippians right, it could mean the opposite. It could mean that he counts you worthy to suffer along with Jesus Christ and that your reward in heaven will be great. I have a great book in my office called Conversations with God. It's 200 years, two centuries of African-American prayers. It's one of my most famous, favorite books to read. Because for 200 years, African Americans in our country for a very, very long time cried out to God. They trusted in Jesus. They gave us some of the great old spiritual hymns. They were faithful to him. They were good to him. They taught their kids to walk with him. And yet for 200 years, they were never released into a life of comfort and relief that they were looking for. And did they cop an attitude and say, well, God must not be good and God must not be, exist or what have you? No, they stayed faithful to him. Why? Because they cared more about his purposes and his glory in and through them. And eventually, relief came. But what about those who the relief didn't come until heaven? What about those who relief did not come during those 200 years of African-American prayers? Was that all for naught? Of course not. God's purposes, his goodness, his glory was in and through that. And they saw it and they relished in that. And that leads us to the fourth mindset that's now the pinnacle of it all, folks, when it comes to a biblical worldview of suffering. And I've already hinted to it. And it's simply this, that what matters most in everything and all things then is God's glory. What matters most in everything and all things is God's glory. You see, folks, though, so hard for the average American living in the 21st century to hear because, again, we're so blessed with comfort and all the other stuff here. In the end, what the Bible affirms is that it's not about us. It's not about us at all. It's about God. Again, you'll never hear that on Oprah. You'll never hear that on Dr. Phil. You'll never get that on a PBS special. Why? Because the world knows nothing of that. The world lives for itself. Only within a Christian worldview do you get the message that it's not about you, but it's about God. Look, one last time at Philippians 1 here, how Paul states it. I'm telling you, this is liberating. He says in verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, meaning he wants deliverance, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be, here it is, honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So what was Paul shooting for? He was shooting that God would be honored in his life. Do you see that there? That God would be honored. And that word honored there is an interesting word. It's translated in the New American Standard Bible as exalted. It's the corollary word to glorify. It simply means to enlarge God's name, to enlarge his reputation. And that was what Paul's main agenda was. 
whether in life or death, whether in relief or comfort, or whether in tough circumstances, what mattered most to him was the glory of God being made manifest in and through his life and this world. And so as we wrap up, let me ask you, could it be that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons really, that some of us don't long suffer very well, that some of us don't hold true very well in difficult circumstances, is because we aren't really all that much concerned about the glory of God being shown in and through us as we are our own relief and comfort. I told you this was 401 level, but that's the question I want to leave you with here this morning. Which matters to you more, your own relief and comfort when tough times hit or the glory and purposes of God? Because you see, there are times when the two will come together. There are some times when God says, I see fit in my glory to bring you relief and comfort, and now we're all happy. But there's other times, in fact, many other times in this fallen world of ours, in this world that is not our home, in which God says, my glory and, comf- my glory and purposes are going to be over here. Your comfort and relief are going to be over here. Which will you choose? C.S. Lewis called it first things first. Are you going to choose a second place thing and elevate it to first place status? Or are you going to choose the first place thing and keep it first place in your life? I can only hope and pray that Scottsdale Bible Church is the kind of church in which we choose his glory. Because look out when we do. Look out for what will that do in your heart and mind when it comes to lack of bitterness and joy and peace in its place. And look out for how we will use you in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word has the regular habit of lifting our sights beyond the here and now that our lives tend to be mired in to what they can be, what our lives can be when we take you at your word. And Lord, we started off this morning by saying that these are the kinds of things that we're looking at today that are not difficult to understand, but extremely difficult to live. And God, I'm sure that there are some folks here today some folks that are struggling with some very, very difficult issues in their lives. And they're at that crossroad of asking what you're up to in their lives. And I pray, God, more than I've ever prayed, that you might give them a deep sense of your presence, of your purpose, of your goodness, of your glory in their lives. And the Lord, you remind them that there are times that you do bring relief and comfort, and there's times that that will wait. And that, Lord, either way, though, your purposes and your glory are meted out in those lives that trust you. And so, God, may we all trust you. May we all have a deep-seated faith, an unwavering faith as the vision of our church is that leads to an unconditional love for those around us. Thank you for your grace and goodness. We lean on that now. In Jesus' holy and precious name, And we all say together, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.